Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. Can you hear me? Can you see me? Okay, so here I am in Netanya. I wanted to uh, to make the presentation, share the fellowship from overlooking the view. I don't know if you could even see it. Can you see the beach? Can you see the, the waves? It's unbelievable. Anyways, it's been really special. It's been really great, but I couldn't figure out how to do it without totally blurring myself. I'm not like such a uh, such a technology. But, um, you know, growing up, there was like I had this best friend, like everybody is Ari and Jeremy, Ari and Jeremy. So it was Ari and Thomas. He escaped from Czechoslovakia when he was seven, obviously, with his family. And, it was, you know, he's a special guy and he's done very well. And so I finally twisted his arm and said, how could you not have a place if you have the means to have a place in the land of Israel, you need to get one. And so he finally broke down after 20 years of my harassing him to get a place in Israel. And he bought this place in Netanya. And now I get to stay in it. Uh, this is the vacation that we took right here in, in Netanya. It's really, really nice. Really grateful for that. Um, and yeah, I came up here with Shiloh and Vash. And it turns out that even when you live in the Garden of Eden, even when you live in the Garden of Eden, it's still nice to have a change and get away a little bit, which we very, very rarely do, but we planned on doing uh, this week. It was going to be a whole week that we were here. Didn't end up being that way, but it's so much fun. I didn't realize how much Devash is like a sheltered little farm girl. Everywhere we go with her, she's like, oh, wow, what is that? A pole in a parking lot. It's like anything is just so incredible to her. It takes literally an hour to get 12 feet. She's so enthralled by the amazement of the universe. It is just so delicious to see. Um, so yeah, so we were supposed to be here for a week, but it ended up just being three days because I really struggle. I struggle saying no to families and to groups who want to come out to the farm and there's no other time that they could do it other than that one day that would be instead of our vacation. I really, I don't know if it's a virtue or a vice. I just see what the experience of being on our mountain does to people, how transformative it is in a way that I'll never fully understand. And of course, you know, there are families that just wouldn't have experienced it if I didn't delay the vacation. And I just couldn't let that be. You know, one family, for example, they were from Brooklyn and they had 11 kids and uh, they wouldn't have had what they all told me was a life changing experience if I didn't delay the trip, a life-changing experience that bonded them to Judea and to Israel and to a facet of their identity where Judaism is not this Brooklyn religion thing, but it's a holistic national identity. It's an experience. It's the expression of your soul. It's just a different thing in the land of Israel. And so I couldn't say no to that. And uh, I didn't need them to tell me that. I saw, I see it myself. I see what happens to them. And it happens all the time. And thank God Shana is so supportive. It's just not always clear to me what the right thing to do is. You know what I mean? You know, you really need to have what King Solomon wished for, uh, a lev shomea, a listening heart. Uh, I'm not sure that I have it yet, but I'm trying. And I think I'm definitely headed in that direction of having more and more of a listening heart. I think we all are. I think that's a big part of what this fellowship is really about. Um, that's part of our mission here. And I'd really love to hear how all of you navigate these conflicting priorities in life. I don't really know exactly how to do it because there's the family and I want to give my attention and my love to them. But there's also 
the greater family in this Brooklyn family with 11 kids. What am I supposed to just ignore them? I don't know how to how to do that. I don't I don't know. But anyways, so instead of Monday, we're returning just a couple of hours after this fellowship because of another very special meeting that could only happen tomorrow. Um, and it's so sensitive that I can't really go into it right now, but I wanted to tell you that it's happening because we'd be grateful for your prayers that Hashem guide us on the right path and lead this meeting to happen as it should. I really hope that already by next fellowship, I can tell you more about the details there. But I really want to make sure that we have plenty of time to discuss this week's Torah portion, because uh, this Torah portion is just, it's a highlight reel. You know, it's just so packed. And while I know that there is no one extraneous word or letter in the entire Torah, if there was only one, one Parsha to choose from that has it all, I really think that I would make the argument that it's this one. This is it. We will, we'll, we'll get into all of that soon. But before we do, I want to introduce uh, Tehila and Jeremy, who fortunately, God willing, are winding up their trips soon. And it's, crit- it's important that they do. It's important that they come back soon. Not only because I miss them and we miss them, Shana misses them, Dvash misses them, because we do, but because the exile can have an effect on anybody. What's my case in point? Last week, we were contacted by an elite unit in the Israeli army who requested the use of our farm for military and air force training. Daniela was actually just talking about that. It was heartbreaking. We were going to host her out here, but we couldn't bring out people to the farm. And so she missed her time to be here. And I'm really, I don't know why Hashem had that in the plans, but Daniela, we're excited to have you out again. But anyways, I'm not allowed to share too many details or too much footage or pictures. I wasn't even allowed to take most of the the pictures, but I just want to share a short video comparing what I was going through during these military training sessions and what Jeremy was going through at nearly the very same time. So here's a picture of me preparing for the training exercise and hugging my little Dvash who saw her Abba jump out of a helicopter and run up a mountain to smother her face with kisses. It was a magical moment. And so that's what we were going through. And um, I want to say this is what Jeremy was Did you see that? I just love that. He's like sitting there tapping on the air. It just summarizes so much of Western culture, just illusions and, and empty fun. But um, but I know, of course, I'm kidding. I just love that. If there's a, by the way, if there's a highlight reel of the whole fellowship, I'd vote for that to make the cut of Among the Highlights. But uh, Jeremy, don't be mad. I'm just playing around. Everybody knows you're on a critical mission over there. Really. I'm getting messages. I'm getting emails. I'm getting WhatsApps about the light you guys are spreading. It's okay to take a few minutes off and punch randomly at the air as you have goggles over your face. Everybody deserves to play around of Donkey Kong. But anyways, let's start with uh, Tehila. Here's Tehila. Hey guys. So this week's Parsha that we just read was the Etchanan. And we also just finished the holiday of Tuba'av, which is the Jewish holiday of love. It's not quite like the non-Jewish holidays of love that we know about Valentine's Day, right? It's, um, this is the, the Jewish version, and the Jewish version of the holiday of Tuba'av, it says in the Mishnah that the single girls would go out into the fields on Tuba'av, and they would dance wearing white, and the, you know, the young suitors would come and pick them 
uh, a wife, and this was the holiday of love. And I don't think it's a coincidence. You guys know by now that I don't believe in coincidences. I don't think it's a coincidence that in this week's Torah portion, we're commanded to love Hashem with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our very, all of our might. And it's also consistently every year the Torah portion that comes out on the holiday of Tuba'av, on the holiday of love that symbolizes the love of marriage, the love between a husband and wife. So I just wanted to share a little idea because the Torah portion and the calendar seem to be guiding us to think about this idea of love. So I just want to share one little idea um, that was taught often by Rabbi Dr. Avram Tversky. He would talk about, Jeremy, I know you're going to laugh, fish love. Fish love? What's fish love? So he would tell a story about this rabbi and he saw this guy eating fish and the guy's eating the fish. Oh, no, I love fish. I love fish. And he's, you know, orders more fish. Get me some more of those fish. And the rabbi says to him, why are you ordering so much fish? He says, well, I just love fish. And he goes, well, if you love fish, you would probably put them in an aquarium and feed them and take care of them and not, I don't know, like kill them and fry them and eat them. You should say you love eating fish. Don't get confused between what you love for yourself and the actual act of loving someone else. You do not love fish, you love eating fish. And Rabbi Tversky took from that story the message that many times what in the Western world, right, in the secular world we call love, it's like loving fish. It's what do you do for me? What have you done for me lately? You're not good for me anymore? See you later. The biblical idea of love is the idea of loving a fish in the way you love a fish. Jeremy and I are kind of using this language lately a lot since we learned it. Uh, the other day Jeremy did something that I knew that he didn't like doing, but I knew that he knew that it was something that I would really like, like buying kale or something. And I said, oh, Jeremy, I feel like a fish in an aquarium. And he totally knew what I meant because this is a term that we use and it's a really useful way of thinking about things. And so Rabbi Tversky says that the secret to love, both loving Hashem and in loving the people around us, is to always be thinking, am I loving fish or am I loving eating fish? To constantly be in that consciousness. And he quotes Dessler from the book Mikhtav Leliyahu, it says, people get confused to think that you give because you love. But the Torah idea is that you love that to which you give. So that's why the verse says you love Hashem. It doesn't say you love Hashem and think about Him all the time. It says you love Hashem with all your soul, heart, and all your soul and all your might. You're going to be giving to Hashem. You're going to be doing the commandments. You're going to be learning. You're going to be praying. You act out that love. And the same with the idea of love between the husband and wife. It's not about what are you giving for me, but what am I giving to you? And from the act of giving comes love. And so with that, I wish you guys a week filled with love, love of Hashem, and love of one another. Bye, guys. Hey, fellowship. Our speaking tour is done 42 days, every day practically a new city. We met so many of our members, people that we had never met before, old friends, new friends. Um, 
It was one of the greatest experiences of our lives and just in perfect timing. Like Tehila said, it's um, the time of love and how beautiful it is to see that our fellowship is just spreading friendship, love, camaraderie, brotherhood, uh, just a spiritual brotherhood. And to Be'av, we just celebrate. And now we're entering into Va'et uh, Hanan, where the Land of Israel Fellowship here, Moshe, prays to make that final connection and connect to the land itself. And in this Torah portion, um, it's arguably my favorite verse in the Torah. And it says, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, Ve'ahavta et Hashem Elohecha bechol levavcha u'bechol nafshecha u'bechol me'odecha. You should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Now the word in Hebrew, if you see right there, it's not might. The word is me'od, with all of your me'odecha. And this is one of the Torahs that I shared at almost every event uh, on this last speaking tour. And so I want to share it now as we've sort of brought the speaking tour to an end. I mean, they had to translate it into something, but with all of your might isn't an exact translation. The word me'od in Hebrew means very. So really the verse reads, you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your very. That doesn't make any sense. That's grammatically incorrect. So there are, I don't know, 3,000 years of Jews arguing what that word means. It's such a fundamental message in the Torah. Such an important verse. I mean, we read it every morning when we wake up. We read it every evening before we go to bed. It's one of the most important verses in the Torah, and it's grammatically incorrect and doesn't make any sense. So what does that word mean? So most people say, with all of your me'od, with all of your very means, with all of your strength, with all of your might. And that's usually how it's translated. But um, Rashi says, no, no, no. With all of your me'od, and with all of your very, with all of your excess, with all of your possessions, all of the things that are around you, if you have a home, use it to bring in guests, use it to host events that bring people closer to Israel, closer to God, closer to each other. If you have a car, use it for good deeds. With, love God with all of your possessions. Another interpretation was with all of your money. Another idea says, no, odecha means with all of your family. Another one says with all of your time. Another one says with all of your thoughts. Another one says, I mean, it's just like endless. What does it all mean? And here we are now in 2022. And who's right? And I think the answer is, and that really is the secret to really learning Torah through a Jewish lens, is that all of those arguments, ah, they're all right. It's just um, another color in the spectrum of the rainbow of understanding the Torah. What is it saying? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your might. It's to love God with everything you've got. With all of your strength, with all of your courage, with all of your might, with all of your money, with all of your family, with all of your time, with all of your possessions, with everything. And what a perspective. Like, you know, I just see that the culture that I was now immersed in for more than a month, it's just kind of like sedating you, calming you down, watch a video, just don't don't think too much, don't work too much, try to do as little as possible and get as much as possible. That's really the ideal of where America is kind of pushing the next generation. And the Torah says, no, no, no. Love God, love life with all your heart and all of your might and all of your soul. Give everything you got into it. Don't just take life for granted. Don't just live a life where you're sort of like just getting by or sort of in a, a fearful state. No, no, no. Just eat it up. Love it. Go big. Just love 
life with everything you've got. And I feel like this speaking tour was an expression of that. You know, when we first moved to the farm, I remember because, you know, Tehillah and I, we, we say it, that the Shema every morning and every night. I'm 42 years old now. And, you know, sometimes you love God. And so when you say it, it's amazing. You, know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. But sometimes you don't really love God. <laughs> and you say it then also. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And you say that every morning and every evening. Every morning and every evening. Almost like a temple sacrifice. There's not much emotions in the temple sacrifices. The priest is just doing what he needs to do. And kind of building that up every morning and every night. When we had to make the decision to move to the farm, Tila and I said, this is our chance. This is our chance to, to love Hashem with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our family, with all of our money, with all of our possessions, to just give it all we got. If we have one life to live, we have one arrow to shoot here, let's really put our hearts and souls and everything we have into it. And this speaking tour, it took a lot out of us. I mean, my poor children. <laughs> in the car, out of the car, in the Motel 6, out of the Motel 6, in this car, in this city, waking up. It's like, where are we? Where? What state? What city? What country? What millennia? We just uh, so disorienting. But we gave it our all. We gave it everything we had. And we felt like we brought so much light into the world and just gathered up more and more sparks and collected new members to the fellowship and made new friends and met old friends and it was just an amazing expression of loving Hashem, of loving each other, and how blessed we are to have this fellowship that is not only just learning Torah, growing to become better people, growing closer to God, growing closer to each other, but really spreading that fundamental message of loving God, of loving life, of loving each other. Let love be the driving force in our life. And now this is really the time to start thinking about this upcoming year, to start thinking about Shuvah. Like Elul is right around the corner. And so let that be the base of how we reorient ourselves, how we realign ourselves, that it should always be based on love and really to put our best foot forward, to really step into life and just eat it up, love it. And so we should all be blessed. And hopefully um, we'll all see you soon on the mountain back in Judea. Shalom. That was uh, beautiful. Tehillah, that was incredible. Really, really good. And despite everything you said, I have to say, I still love chicken wings. I do. With all my ma'ods, I love chicken wings. But um, yeah, I remember years ago, I went on a speaking tour that was six weeks because when we were setting up a speaking tour, you, you print up these calendars, or at least I did, and they're all just like little boxes. I'm like, oh, what's another three, four boxes? And then when you're actually there, you're six weeks. It's like, oh my goodness. They've been gone even longer than that. I can only imagine with children, Oh my goodness, they're going to come back and have readjustment syndrome. I always have readjustment syndrome. It's an intense thing, just not knowing who you are, what you are when you come back. Uh, hopefully, Hashem will make that uh, rather merciful and compassionate for their whole family. And it's good to see them. And it's good to see you, Brett Rowling. Good to see you, Brett Rowling. Shalom. And Richard and Janet, Tom, Callan Ardell, you're always at the top, which is great because you guys laugh at my jokes and it makes me feel good. Anyways, so um, so it's going to be good to see them. It's good to see all of you. And we are in Parshat Va'et Hanan. It's in the book of Dvarim. And I was deliberating about whether to go into this, but it really, it's a fascinating book of the Torah because essentially the book of Dvarim, Deuteronomy, 
is a 37-day long speech given by Moshe Rabbeinu, given by Moses, that culminates with his last day on earth. And our, our understanding is that the first four books, right? Rabbi Jacobson explains this among others. They were the words of Hashem transcribed directly by Moshe. Hashem spoke them to Moshe and Moshe with loyalty and fidelity wrote every word exactly as Hashem says. I mean, how many times do we hear? And Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, and Moshe is writing these words. But then the last book, the book of Dvarim, the book we've just embarked upon was from Moshe, meaning like it's from his own heart. Moshe internalized the Torah so fully by this point in his life, he had so completely integrated it into his heart and soul that the last 37 days of his life, he had so brought it into his heart that he gave it over from within himself. And yet it's still considered a book of the Torah still considered God's words, even though they're from Moshe's mouth. It's really incredible when you think about it. And that alone is worth focusing on and reflecting upon, because as we know, there was never a prophet like Moshe, who was such a humble, ego-free vessel that his words are considered no less part of the Torah than God's own words. And uh, this truth does lay the very important groundwork for the concept of the oral Torah in which the words of the sages are considered to some level, to some degree, to be divine. Yes, it's less divinely inspired than the words of Moshe, but nonetheless, they're considered divinely inspired. And I bring this up because I love bringing up stuff that I know, finding those things that we don't all agree upon. I love focusing on those, not glossing those over, but I love focusing on those because to me, this is not an abstract theological detail, but it very much expresses the principle of man's role of creative partnership with Hashem that is central to rabbinic Judaism, whatever that means. And, and, you know, we've had hours of discussions. Many of you and I have had hours of discussions uh, about this subject, and I know that you don't all see it that way, and that's why I bring it up. Not to change anyone's minds, but because I think it's important that we really understand and appreciate each other. And so I personally find the fact that Moshe, a human being, of flesh and blood, right, could reach himself to a level of spiritual service, that the words coming from his mouth could be on the same level as the words of Hashem himself, which brings us to Parshat Ve'etchanan, which starts off with the words Ve'etchanan, right, and Moshe pleaded to Hashem saying, here's the, here's the verse, my Lord, Hashem Elohim, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand, for what power is there on heaven or on earth that can perform according to your deeds and according to your mighty acts? Let me now cross and see the good land that is on the other side of the Jordan, this good mountain and the Lebanon. And by the way, the sages say that this good mountain refers to Haramoria, Mount Moriah, and Lebanon is also a reference to the temple for, for other reasons from Lebanon, from Lavan. It whitens, it purifies. But anyways... Moshe is pleading to Hashem. It's not an easy thing to look at. You know, his whole life was building up to this mission to enter the land of Israel. Moshe, who never, as far as I can think, has ever asked anything for himself. And now he was pleading with Hashem, begging Hashem to let him into the land. And this wasn't about leadership and continuing his leadership. There's no ego involved in here. He was more than willing to relinquish leadership. I think he probably couldn't wait to relinquish leadership. 
That didn't bother him at all. He just wanted to enter the land. He wanted to have that special, unique closeness to Hashem that one can really, truly only have in the land of Israel. And, and how does Hashem respond to Moshe? So according to Moshe, right, that's the book of Dvarim, Moshe is sharing from his heart. Hashem said, Rav Lacha, it's too much for you. Or alternatively, you have so much already, meaning you have so many merits already. Don't ask for anything else. It feels to me almost as if Hashem loved Moshe so much that it pained Hashem's heart to say no. And that Moshe shouldn't ask again, because if he did, Hashem may not be able to say no. I don't know if that's heretical. It just, that's what it feels like to me. That's the feeling I get when I read it. But Hashem does partially grant Moshe's request. He says, Ascend to the top of the cliff and raise your eyes, for you shall not cross this Jordan. Right? Ascend to the top of the cliff and raise your eyes, for you shall not cross this Jordan. So Moshe asks to both cross and see the good land. And while Hashem didn't allow him to cross, he did allow him to see, meaning he partially granted the request. Now, in uh, Jeremy's Sphera series, you remember he gave that whole series and he taught about how each of the forefathers were attributed a, a certain spiritual, emotional quality, which we call the Spherot, right? Which are called upon, we're called upon to learn from them and integrate them into ourselves with the proper balance, right? That's what the word in Hebrew for an attribute is a Midah, which also means a certain amount, meaning we have to have certain amounts of compassion, certain amounts of strict justice and know when to exercise each one. And so we try to integrate these within ourselves, right? Avraham was uh, associated with chesed, right? With loving kindness and Yitzchak with gevura, which is a discipline and self-control. And for three organic uh, candies, kosher organic candies, that's what I offer everybody that comes to the farm. What was Moshe's attribute that his very essence embodied? The answer is Netzach, Netzach, eternity. And if that word seems familiar, it's because my boy, my sweet son, Shiloh, that has been popping out smiles all day. Unbelievable. Oh, I'm just falling in love with this little boy. His name is Shiloh Netzach, because he was born on Netzach Shabanetzach during the Omer. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. If I went into it now, it would take up half the fellowship. If anyone wants more of an explanation, about why his name was Shiloh Netzach, send me a message and I'll send you the disjointed emotional speech that I gave at his circumcision. But anyways, Netzach means eternity, endurance, right, foreverness. And uh, Rabbi Asher Sinclair explains that this is why the Torah was given through Moshe, because everything that Moshe did was eternal, including the Torah, right? The Torah, as we know, is eternal. And that's why he couldn't enter the land, because if he did, there simply could never have been an exile from the land. And that wasn't the divine plan. The exile needed to happen, whether for you know, one reason or another, whether the nation of Israel needed to collect the sparks, the sparks from around the world or to fan their flames. You guys, I think many of you really justify the entire exile just in and of yourselves. Or perhaps just because we couldn't uphold the level of sanctity that we needed in order to stay in the land, or maybe they're connected, whatever it was. The exile was part of the plan, and therefore the eternal Moshe couldn't be the one to usher us into the land. And while Moshe couldn't enter the land, he needed to see the land. 
I actually think Hashem would have let him see the land even if he didn't make that request. Because by gazing upon the land of Israel from a distance, right, by gazing with, the, with those yearning eyes and those pining eyes, that feeling of ga'aguim, ga'aguim is the word, that feeling of longing and desire that Moshe felt when he looked into the land, that feeling entered into the collective heart of the nation of Israel for all time, whether it's a subconscious or a conscious yearning, it's there. It's there. I see it in so many of you. In Daniela, she was heartbroken. She wasn't able to come out to the farm, and she was already in the land. She wanted to come out to Judea, which, by the way, I really believe in my heart is that, that yearning, that fire, something about our mountain in Judea kindles that in a special way, in a different way, in, in the Jewish heart and the human heart. Because from my understanding, and I could be wrong about this, it was the mountains directly across from our farm to the east, just a little bit north of us, which was the general area that Moshe stood when he gazed longingly into the land. And while the prophets of Israel say that Moshe prophetically saw every blade of grass on the physical, simple level, it may very well have been our area, maybe a little bit north of us, that Moshe actually saw with his physical eyes. And, uh, you know, again, I could be wrong about that. I just didn't have the time to do a definitive research. But what I can tell you is that when I look across the Dead Sea at those towering mountains of the Jordan, I picture Moshe standing there and looking in. And uh, anyways, Hashem said to Moshe, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1, Now, O Israel, listen to the decrees and the ordinance that I teach you to perform so that you may live, and you will come and possess the land that Hashem the God of your forefathers gives to you. And that's the first of many times in the Parsha and in the book of Dvarim, in the Torah, right, that this exact sentiment, sentiment is expressed, right, that, that our success and our failure in, in the land of Israel is really dependent, first and foremost, on our fidelity to the Torah. And, uh, you know, if we don't keep the Torah, we're not going to stay in the land. What makes us better than the Canaanites or the Jebusites or the Hittites or anyone else if we stoop to their level of behavior? Anyways, Moshe then goes on to say not to subtract or add to the Torah, which is both uh, you know, obvious and controversial. I think it's obvious because if it's the word of Hashem, how could we consider deleting any of it? And it's controversial because in guarding it, it does often feel that the fences we've erected are adding to it to some degree. And I wanted to dive more into that subject, but then we're just not going to get anywhere. But I think you know what I'm talking about. And that's a subject we should talk about because many of you have brought that up to me, that it seems like a lot of the Jewish law seems like it's adding to the laws of the Torah. So let's make sure to talk about that soon. Send me a message if you want me to dive into that at a certain point. But, um, but then comes the verse that I, I, I've always found so powerful. It's a verse which has taken its place as a rather uh, you know, powerful verse in Jewish prayer during the Torah portion of every Shabbat service. And what is that verse? But you who cling to Hashem, your God, you are alive today. Cling to Hashem. What does that exactly mean? Hashem isn't a physical thing. How can you cling to Hashem? What does that mean? So the word in Hebrew is dvekim. Uh, from the word in modern Hebrew is devek, right, which is glue. It's more than just adhering to the Torah. It's clinging to the Torah. Sort of, I visualize it like one would do to a, a life raft in the middle of a stormy sea. 
And I'd say that if there is one verse that describes the people in this fellowship, that's the verse. That's the verse that describes all of you. For each and every one of you that I've met cleaves to Hashem with all of your hearts. That's what really brings us together. You either cleave to Hashem with all of your hearts, or at the very least, you're like me, and you at least aspire to cleave to Hashem with all of your hearts. Maybe you don't always live up to that, but at least you aspire to. For me, when I'm, when I'm cleaving to Hashem, what does that feel like? It's, it's like I always have Hashem's name on my lips. It's, it's, Hashem is in my mind. He's on my lips. My mouth is filled with blessings, both from like liturgy, right? From daily activities like, like eating or after I use the restroom or, you know, the established prayers in the morning, in the afternoon and the night, but also just from my heart when I bless others, blessing people all that. That's what I do literally all day, every day, everywhere we go. You can ask Shana. I go to the Makolet and I buy a popsicle and I'm blessing the guy in, in Hashem's name. That's just, it's, it just becomes what I do, like what I say, but it's never by rote. It's always from my heart. That's been a really great blessing Hashem has given me is the ability to integrate the power of blessings into my consciousness and bless people all the time. And you could tell they really, they appreciate it. People don't often just go around blessing each other in Hashem's name. That's, that's a deal. Anyway, so for me, it's like cleaving to Hashem. It means thinking of Hashem, reflecting on his oneness and his ways and, uh, and the moment of anger or doubt or fear that enters within me. And it does sometimes frequently, whenever that happens to immediately cleave to Hashem and integrate the truth of his sovereignty into that vacuum where that anger showed up. That is a gift, that anger, because it showed where that, that blemish, that vacuum, that empty spot within me was that wasn't filled with Hashem. And it gives me the opportunity to illuminate Hashem into that very place. And so clinging to Hashem is the only thing that gives us real life, right? That's the verse. By the time you should, you, you're all, those who cling to Hashem, you're all alive today. Real life, right? If we're not clinging to Hashem, uh, uh, what are we doing? We're putting our faith in man or in money or in nature or in coincidence. That's a big one. Things just happened. Things just are, right? And we're just fluttering in these winds of illusion. And so that actually brings up the, um, the holy words from from King David. But before I say that, I just want to say this in, in my heart. I wanted to share because we open up with each other. We're honest with each other. I, I had one of those moments this week. You know, I got in a argument with my father and I spoke to him in a way that was not acceptable. It is not the way that, uh, that we should speak to our, particularly on the week where we are hearing the 10 commandments that we are to honor our mother and father. And it doesn't matter if I was right or wrong in my argument. That is not about honoring your mother and father. It is not about right or wrong. We yield to our parents and show them love and respect no matter what. And for some reason, I just lost that. And that week, that week for the first time in maybe 10, 15 years, I don't remember how long, I got this blemish here, this little thing on my lip. And immediately I said, that was it. I spoke to my father in such a way with, the, with my mouth, and that's what Hashem did, and I was grateful for it. And I turned to my father, and I said, please, please, please forgive me. Look what I got on my life. He says, forgiven, forgiven. And then I turned to him again. I'm like, but it's still here. Clearly, you're not really forgiving me. I'm really sorry. You deserve a better son. 
than you have, and I'm sorry for that. <coughs> but if we weren't cleaving to Hashem, if I wasn't, then I would just be like, oh, I just got a thing on my lip. It's not Hashem talking to me in the most personal and profound way. That's why it's real life. It's real life because of that real, raw, open connection and relationship and communication to Hashem. And, uh, and, and otherwise, we're just like, to some degree, we're just like idolaters. You know, it brings up for me the words of King David from Psalm 115. He says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. And through their throat, they cannot speak. May they who make them become like them and everyone who trusts in them. And that part always really struck me when I said that, you know, because that's one of the Psalms that we say on Rosh Chodesh and on the holidays. It's like, it's a very central one. And so uh, those that make them, those who trust in them, in the end, they're like them. They're not connected to the source of true life. The Melech El Kayam, the living and sustaining king. Okay, so let's go on. So literally, let's go on right to the next verse. That's the challenge of this Parsha. It's so packed that there's something to say about literally every verse. It's a little bit like when I filmed Vash, determining where to start filming and stop filming just feels like an arbitrary decision. Like, I'm not going to get that far into this Parsha. I can already tell I'm not going to get that far, but that's okay. Um, so let's continue. Chapter four, verses five and six. Behold, I have taught you statutes and ordinances as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do so in the land where you go to take possession of it. Keep therefore and do them for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations who, when they hear all these statutes shall say, surely a wise and discerning people is this great nation, or surely a wise and understanding, Navon is the word in Hebrew, and understanding people is this great nation. So the first verse makes it clear that performing the mitzvot of the Torah in the land of Israel, right, that's how we actually take possession of it. Not by putting down flags or fences or security systems. That may or may not be necessary, but the real way to take possession of the land is by performing the chukim and the mishpatim, the statues and the ordinances within the land itself. And the truth is that in, in my heart, I believe that if we remained true to the Torah with integrity and fidelity, not just on personal levels, but on a national level, if we channeled our fear not to the nations that threaten us, but to the God who sustains us, then we would not need any walls or fences or security systems. Because even the nations who right now hate us and threaten us and plot our destruction, even they would gaze upon us with love and respect and say, surely a wise and understanding people is this great nation. And, uh, and I believe that that's what we're going to, going to be seeing in the days to come. I know right now it seems so far off. We just had another terrorist attack here in Israel. Hashem should heal all those people that were wounded and, and severely punish the evil terrorists. But um, so it's hard to imagine all of that in the days to come, but I believe that's what's coming uh, soon in, in our days, in our days. And you all probably knew uh, that what I was thinking when I first read that verse. I imagine you knew because, you know, in my eyes, this fellowship is the beginning of the fulfillment of that prophecy, right? The first rays of that redemptive light for 
although we're not all literally, you know, of the same nation or the same religion, whatever that means, this fellowship is filled with God-loving, truth-seeking souls with the humility and the love to send me nearly exactly those same words every single week, right? Words singing the praises and the beauty and the wisdom of Israel. Um, I just, I can't help but to see the fellowship in that exact verse the moment I read it. And notice verse six, right? It's, it's different than verse five. Verse five tells us to perform the statutes and the ordinances within the land. But verse six tells us that it's dafka. You know what dafka means? It's like only, I don't know how to describe dafka, but it says that dafka, it's the chukim, the statutes that will inspire the nations to profess their love and admiration for us. And I'm actually glad this is coming up because there's someone in this fellowship I'm, I'm not sure who sent me a message asking me to review the distinctions between the Edot and the Chukim and the Mishpatim. Ardell, was it you? I don't remember. No, it wasn't Ardell. And, and, and I lost that message and I couldn't find it, which, by the way, is one of the reasons that I encourage you to please send me a second message. If for some reason I don't reply to your first, they often just slip through my fingers. And Bezrat Hashem, I will answer the second one. So don't give up if I don't respond and forgive me ahead of time if I don't respond. But anyways... So ADD right now. So briefly, a dot are testimonies. They're the uh, commandments that testify to a truth of creation. Like the Sabbath testifies to the creation of the world in six days, or the Passover Seder and Matzah testifies to the redemption from Egypt. That's why they're called a dot from Ed, which is testimony, like a witness. Mishpatim are decrees that seem to be logical or rational, and without which it's pretty clear that society wouldn't function well at all, like not stealing or not killing, for example. And the chukim, well, those are the statutes. Those are the commandments, uh, the logic and reason of which are not comprehensible to the human mind. And, uh, and, and that's, and notice, you know, it's in verse six, it says that when the nations see those, the chukim, the ones that we think that the nations would see us fulfilling these chukim, and they would consider us superstitious and irrational. But that is what will make them sing our praises. And uh, I was thinking about the reason for this, and I'm not sure about the reason I'm going to share. And I would love to hear your thoughts about why it's the statutes, the chukim, that will inspire the nations more than anyone else. But, but I believe that maybe part of the reason for this is because I think right now the world really wants to believe. They want to believe. They're hungry. Right, The prophet Amos talks about it. They're hungry, not for bread, and nor are they thirsty for water, but to hear the words of Hashem. And, um, you know, not just the words of Hashem, not just words at all, but you know, insight and wisdom. The words of Hashem, the creator of heaven and earth, whose wisdom far transcends what we can understand. And when the people of the world see a nation, right, the startup nation, right, with all the inventions and brilliant technological breakthroughs, with an understanding and really a relative mastery of the laws of chemistry and biology and much of the physical world. And nonetheless, we lovingly and we wholeheartedly fulfill the chukim, which we can't understand at all. Perhaps that will give them the inspiration that'll give the nations the permission, the license to embrace a higher power that they don't understand as well. And there's nothing that gives more joy and, and life force to a soul than reconnecting to Hashem, right? Disconnecting from emptiness and vanity and self-worship 
and connecting to Hashem, the life force for which every soul has been yearning since the moment that it entered the world. So in the next verses, Moshe goes on to warn the nation not to forget, but not really just for them not to forget, because they themselves have, uh, have arguably seen too much with their own eyes to completely forget, but rather Hashem tells Moshe, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, only beware for yourself and greatly for your soul, lest you forget the things that you have that your eyes have beheld, lest you remove them from your heart all the days of your life and make them known to your children and your children's children. The day that you stood before Hashem, your God at Horeb, right at Sinai, when Hashem said to me, gather the people to me and I shall let them hear my words so that they shall learn to fear me all the days that they live on earth and they shall teach their children. And they shall teach their children, right? That's that's really what, what the Torah is, is all about. That's what it's all about. Since I'm a little kid, my father wasn't necessarily observant or religious or educated, but all he cared about was one thing, my education, that I become educated. And, and that's, it's about educating your children. For people that don't have children, right? Like at the, uh, at the Seder, when you're all alone, you should teach yourself as if you were a child, as the Lubavitcher Rebbe said, he didn't have any children, or to teach other people's children. Because we could think that it would be impossible to forget these things. But if we thought such a thing, we would just be demonstrating our lack of understanding of human nature, right? It's just, just read the Torah. You see it all over the place. The human mind forgets, right? And the human memory is fleeting. It's a blessing. In some ways, it's a blessing that we have such poor memories because it allows us to, to heal from the pain and to recover from the loss of a loved one. But it's also a liability to have such a poor memory and that we can totally forget everything that really matters. And that's why we are so immersed in commandments, right? From the moment we wake up in the morning to the moment we fall asleep at night, from before we take a bite of food to right after that bite of food, from, uh, from after we use the restroom to when we happen to see a thunderbolt or a lightning bolt or hear thunder, or a rainbow. There's a blessing for everything. Everything in our world is an opportunity presented to us to connect. Because in the end of the day, if we don't use our world to connect, it will be used to disconnect. We will be disconnected through the world. And if we disconnect after everything that we've seen in our lives, what chance do our children have after us? And that's why a lot of sociologists, sociologists they explain that Jews ranked so high on intelligence tests, because as opposed to many other nations who seek spouses based on wealth or strengths or looks for millennia of generations, where the most sought after spouse was the Talmud Chacham, right? The Torah scholars. That's who everybody wanted their daughter to marry. That is why Jewish education has always been paramount beyond nearly any other priority. School, that's the first thing you do is you set up a school. This, this directive of Moshe was that, was, was that deeply ingrained into our national psyche. So Moshe then goes out to warn the people to beware of falling yet again into the all too familiar and dangerous pitfalls of idolatry. Because uh, that illusion, that vice is just so seductive, right? To see these powerful forces Hashem created like the sun and the moon and the stars. That's back then. 
now it's the dollar bill and the stock market or whatever. And it's just so easy to make these things, God forbid, into gods themselves. And now you don't, uh, you don't have... You don't have a God that you need to answer to, that has his own will and desire that he's trying to convey to you for your own good. But rather, when you create your own God, you can project your own will and likeness onto that God that you've just created. There's a lot of self-interest in idolatry. It's all about self-interest. That's what idolatry is, but we don't need to get lost on that right now. Uh, because the repetition continues. I'm telling you, the more I read through this Parsha, the more I realized that it's not only among my favorites, but it's also among the most repetitive. And I think those two things are connected because the older and I think maybe the wiser that I get, the more I realize that repetition really is one of the secrets to consciousness and awareness because the illusions of this world are so thick and so compelling that only if we fight with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our souls, if we're constantly repeating and remembering and repeating and remembering, do we even have a chance of piercing through these illusions of the world. And even then, it takes a tremendous amount of siyata dishmaya, you know, which is Aramaic for like help from heaven to, to even hope that we'll be able to do that. Okay, and then there's this brief pause in the narrative of warnings and education in which Moshe shares a prophecy with the people that if anything, right, it, it vindicates all of his repetition because he ends up saying that despite all of it, the nation will indeed grow corrupt and worship idols and do evil and anger Hashem, right? And you will, hear, here's the verse, chapter four, uh, verses 27, 28. You shall surely, and you will surely perish from the land which you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You shall not have lengthy days upon it, for you will be destroyed. Hashem will scatter you among the nations and the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where Hashem will lead you. There you will serve gods, the handiwork of man, of wood and stone, which do not see and do not hear and do not eat and do not smell. I mean, first of all, all of these prophecies of the exiles and the ingathering of the exile, it's so crazy that the Torah would put its credibility on the line because never before has a nation been exiled and survived as a holistic entity let alone been ingathered and brought back to the land, but the Torah is filled with exactly those prophecies. But from the last verse, right, you'll serve God's the handiwork of man of wood and stone, right? It actually reminds of the Psalm 115 that we just read. But from this last verse, our sages liken a Jew who lives in the exile to idol worshipers. Because if we are serving nations that worship the handiwork of man, who place their faith and forces other than Hashem, even if we personally don't. It's almost as if we do. For if they serve idols and we serve them, well, by the law of transitivity, we serve idols. For if Hashem did create the world and is the ultimate power over the world, and we're his nation, then why are we his nation, right? Isaiah talks about this, I believe, chapter 36, verse 25, right? Then why are we his nation? Why are we subject to the will and under the rules and the authority of idolaters and other nations. So that being said, however, we've seen that when the nation of Israel lives under foreign land and under foreign rule, it's only a matter of time until huge swaths become so tainted and influenced to follow in those very idolatrous ways, in an active way, 
meaning not holding on to Judaism and Jewish values and the one God of Israel, but actually accepting and embracing idolatrous gods, God forbid. We've seen that. That happens again and again throughout the exile. And whether they're doing it because they authentically believe in it or because they delude themselves into thinking that if they embrace and adopt these nonsensical lies, that the nations among whom they've been scattered will all of a sudden start loving us and stop hating us. A lot of them, that's what it's about. They, we just want to be loved. Finally, just love us. We'll do whatever we need to do. You believe in whatever crazy leftist, transgender nonsense. Okay, we're in. We're, we're going to donate to the Democratic Party. I'm not going to get political. I don't even know why I just went there. I should think through before I say that. But there's something to it that we just embrace the emptiness and the vanity of the nonsense. Um, and uh, that's just, the, for the nation of Israel, the exile is a wholesale disaster, and it never ends well, never. Oh my goodness, we are running out of time. But right then, okay, right then, after that dark and disheartening prophecy, which I can imagine the nation of Israel would listen to, and be like, oh God, we haven't even started yet. We're already exiled. We're already doing this. Right after that dark prophecy, Moshe does proceed to offer consolation and offer us one more prophecy that would take place after all of that, at the end of days, the Ketz Hayamim, that we see happening right now. I believe that this prophecy is what we see happening right now because we already saw all of that, right? So here it is. But from there, you shall seek the Lord your God. You shall find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you were in distress and all of these things have come upon you in the latter days, in the Ketzayamim, if you turn to the Lord your God and you shall be obedient to his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your forefathers, which he swore to them. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day God created man upon the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether there has been any such thing as great as this, or whether it's ever been heard of. Did ever people hear the voice of God speaking out in the midst of the fire as you've heard and lived? Or has God ventured to go and take a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, and by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is nothing other than him. There's nothing other than him. You guys know me. That's my thing. That's it. That's right. You know me. And uh, we've just reached my own personal primary mantra. You know, the words that for me personally anchor me the deepest and always help me regain my balance when I'm wavering. And I'm not saying that's it's that way for everybody. You know, when I bring people out to the farm in Judea, I explain that just because my soul is anchored in Judea, and this is the place for me to best uh, live my life as a Jew in the hills of Judea right here, different Jews have different places in the land of Israel that they connect to. Maybe different people have different verses that they connect to. But for me, that verse, it's just helped me regain my balance when I'm wavering. Ain od mil vado. Ain od mil vado. There's nothing other than him. And oh my goodness, we're running out of time. And I, Okay, so I'm pretty sure that we've, we could, we, we've done entire fellowships on these words. But if I had to bring it all together, 
These words are so precious to me, not because they remind me that there are no other gods other than Hashem. I don't believe that's what the verse is trying to say. I actually think that's what verse 39, right? In chapter four, verse 39 is trying to say. You shall know this day and take to your heart that Hashem, he is the God in heaven and on the earth below. There is no other. Notice that verse 39, you got to know the Hebrew. You got to be following in the Hebrew, but verse 39 says, Ein od, meaning there are no others. But in verse 35, it says, Ein od milvado. There is nothing other than him. This verse helps me so much because it reminds me of the deepest truth. Not that there are no other gods, which is obviously true, but there is nothing other than God. He's all that there is. We are enveloped in his oneness in a way that we simply cannot understand. We cannot fathom it. We cannot wrap our minds around it. Science is coming to these realities. E equals MC squared. There's nothing but energy. It's everything is one. But they can't, they aren't really fathoming the consequences of what this science is showing us. It's just too hard for the human brain to understand. We're immersed in Hashem's love and goodness and everything else that we see. Enemies, threats, evil, darkness, all of it is ultimately an illusion, a mask, a mask that Hashem places over himself to disguise the truth that everything is a manifestation of his love for us, everything. Okay, and uh, okay, there's a lot left. I'm going to try to skip through some of these things that I wanted to share, but that's okay because you know, in my mind, if we really spend a, a moment concentrating and focusing on that one truth, ain't od milvado, then the rest of the Parsha, and there's a lot of it, the Ten Commandments, the Shema, all of it is expounding upon that one deepest truth. They're all different ways in which that one ultimate truth of Hashem manifests itself in the world and different ways that we can keep that truth in our minds and in our hearts. Each of the Ten Commandments follows a different you know, angle, a different prism, a different expression of the truth of Enod Milvado and the way it manifests itself in the world. The first five, which uh, sort of you know, direct the relationship between man and Hashem, they reflect that truth. And the last five, which direct our relationship between man and his fellow man, reflect the way that Hashem's oneness is expressed in our relationship with each other. I'm just... <laughs> fleeting, flying through the most critical ideas. But you'll have to forgive me. Anyways, the more I'm thinking about this, the more I think that this subject deserves its, its own session, perhaps even its own fellowship, maybe even a fellowship that is 37 days long. Moshe Rabbeinu got one. So uh, that would just be really awesome. But it, it, it actually physically pains me to be condensing it all this way when each commandment deserves its own explication. But uh, for our purposes today, this is what it's meant to be. Because to me, actually, when I read through the Parsha again and again, it sounds to me like Moshe is going through the same torment that I feel like I'm going through with all of you. He's condensing it all himself. Perhaps he didn't know that he would have 37 days left. He didn't know how much time he had left. And he was just trying to get it all out before he ran out of time. I mean, he goes from the Ten Commandments to the Shema, you know, our, our primary national mantra, the Shema goes right into that. You know, the Shema that every child says from their first words of their day to their last words of the day that we all say from the first words of our lives to 
So the very last words we say before we leave the world, we say Kriyat Shema Al Hamita at night on, on our bed, and Kriyat Shema Shel Hamita of, of our perishing, of our, before we die, there's a special Kriyat Shema built all around that. And so what are those words? Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel. Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem is our God. Hashem is one. We all know that we could spend the rest of our lives just talking about that one verse. What does Hashem mean? How is Hashem different than Elohim? What does it mean that Hashem is our Elohim? What does one really mean? We could go on and on. But the verses of the Shema continue to the same end. And in many ways, they're a summary of the entire portion within itself. That we should love Hashem with all our heart, with all our soul, with all of our possessions, with all of our me'ods, right, as Jeremy said. We should take it upon our hearts. And then, right, this is very interesting. A friend of mine just sent this to me. I never noticed. It says we should we should take alavavchem v'shinantem levanecha only after we take it upon our hearts and then v'shinantem levanecha only after we work to internalize them into our hearts will we be able to successfully convey them to our children, right? Where we can't just teach them from our minds that we need to just as Moshe did integrate that into his essence and then teach it over. So too we need to integrate it into our essence and then teach it over. And even if we don't teach it, it will come out in everything that we do. And we will teach our children on the road and in all places and on all times. And we should bind these words on our hearts, right? On our arms, and between our eyes, right? What's that talking about? Just think about that for a moment. Why do I put on tefillin, phylacteries every single morning? I think I missed one day in 20 something years, right? Why, why do we do that? Why do I do that? I put one on over my forehead. What's the forehead? The seat of my intellect and the other inside of my arm opposite my heart. The intellect, well, we can decide what we think, right? We can, we can decide, it's not easy, but we can decide what we think and what we learn and what we focus on. But our heart, we can't always control that. But if we bind our minds to Hashem with all of our focus and all of our efforts and all of our life force, then with Hashem's help, we can internalize that truth into our hearts, which will, which will then burst forth with emotion and love for Hashem, and love for His Torah. Our heads and our hearts, both of them together, our minds and our action, to internalize the truth of Ein Od Mil Vado into every bit of our essence. And so, my friends, I want to bless all of you. I want to bless all of us, all of us, that we should be able to live that truth, to understand it, and internalize it. We shall know that day and internalize it into our hearts that we should merit to be among those that are dveikim to Hashem, that are clinging to Hashem, that we should be among those that cleave to Hashem and that are truly alive on this very day. And speaking of blessings, here we are, and I would love the honor of blessing you again, the, the blessing of of Aaron, the high priest that he gives to the nation of Israel. And yes, as I tell you every week, I am not a descendant of Aaron. I am from the other tribes of Israel, but God does tell us, Hashem tells us, then we're an Am Kohenim, we're a nation of priests. So it's my honor to bless all of you. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha Ya'er Adonai panav elecha Yechunecha Yisa Adonai panav elecha v'yasem lecha shalom. May Hashem bless you and protect you.
May Hashem make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Hashem lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.